All right, welcome back to the PhD podcast. This is episode 11. We're excited to have Nicole Strzok here from Penn State University. Nicole, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, Nicole, I know you're a fifth-year PhD student uh, over, over at Penn State. Can you uh, give us a little background on who you are? Sure. So I've had a long and winding path to get to where I am. Um, I'm originally from San Diego, and I made my way up to University of Washington in Seattle to do my undergrad, where I studied biology. Um, I also walked on to the track and cross-country teams there, uh, which was a really great experience um, and helped kind of solidify my interest in uh, sports science-related career path. It did take me a while to get to where I am at Penn State, but uh, I eventually got there. So after undergrad, I eventually went to work at a pharmaceutical company for a little bit and decided that I wanted to come back for a master's. So I traveled across country, made it to Penn State, started my master's in physiology, and I actually was working with rats. Uh, for my master's thesis, we, um, this sounds so harsh and cruel, but we were essentially giving them heart attacks and looking at how the mitochondria responded to the heart attack. So they were estrogen deficient rats. So it was kind of like a postmenopausal model. Um, it was great, but I spent a lot of time in a basement and looking into an electron microscope and I decided that I wanted to work with some humans. So I, Continued on for a PhD in the kinesiology program where I am currently situated and my research is dealing with the effects of energy deficiency on metabolism, reproductive function, and bone health in young women. That's amazing. So, Nicole, you sent us a, a really, really cool article. I had a blast reading this. Uh, and we'll put this in the show notes. It's by Williams et al. Um, the title of the article was Evidence for a Cause of Role of uh, low energy availability and the induction of the menstrual cycle disturbances during strenuous exercise training. Um, so why did you choose this article and how does that pertain to your own research interests? So I chose this article for a couple of reasons. First, I love animal models and the scope at which this investigation occurred, I feel like it's pretty much impossible to do in humans. Um, it trying to do a study of this magnitude for two years and collecting the data that they did, the dropout rate in humans would be ridiculous. Um, so I, I thought it was a very impressive study. And it's also been pretty foundational in our research field. Um, basically, in the mid-90s, when they were doing research in exercising women, um, Some investigators had done some shorter duration studies that were looking at the effects of um, being estrogen deficient or energy deficient or exercising a lot and was looking to see how um, menstrual function was impacted. These studies showed that there were decreases or alterations in the um, hormones that were related to um, reproductive function, but they didn't actually show that a specific energy deficiency related to exercise was actually manifesting in these um, menstrual uh, reproductive dysfunctions. Um, So this study was looking at these monkeys who they ran for uh, between, I think it was like seven to 
24 months. So a, a pretty considerable amount of time. And they had them running. I mean, even when I was training, I was not running as much as these monkeys. It was seven days a week, two hours a day. Um, I, I should I should send you over the there's a, a previous paper that describes this method and there's this hilarious uh, depiction of the monkeys in like a plexiglass box with air holes running on the treadmill. Oh man! Yeah. So N- Nancy Williams, who wrote the paper or you know who led the investigation, she's actually one of my mentors. So I've gotten a little bit of insight into oh, the that's paper. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's it's pretty funny to hear her talk about how like I think they were on a, a lower floor, and when the um, head person <laughs> of their lab would walk in, like the monkeys knew who the person was just based on the the sound of the footsteps. But I, I digress. It, it was a really cool study. Um, it showed that you could induce um, amenorrhea, which is the loss of a menstrual cycle for more than three months in these monkeys and that by refeeding them to counteract the energy deficit from um, exercising at such a uh, an extreme level on the treadmill um, that you could essentially reverse the amenorrhea which is amazing amazing yeah um, <laughs> that was it was awesome to, to read about that for sure that's nicole this is this is jason and that was a really interesting description and just general overview it's something that i think harjeev and i was kind of well beyond anything that we've ever really encountered so it was it was neat to to hear your thoughts on this and just get your ideas related i was i was looking over this paper and i was like i wonder how they get monkeys they actually run on treadmills and, and things like that so it was really interesting uh to listen to you talk about that. But one of the questions that I had just getting particularly into the article and just getting your thoughts as well is that they mentioned uh, a concept quite a bit in this paper called exercise induced reproductive dysfunction. And my question to you is, Nicole, if you could just explain, you know, that kind of concept to our listeners who might not have a uh, background such as yourself and maybe touch on a little bit like who, like from a human standpoint, ath- athletic standpoint, who would be at the highest risk for potentially developing exercise-induced reproduction function and why? Like why, what are the mechanisms that are leading to that? Sure. So exercise-induced reproductive dysfunction or exercise-associated menstrual disturbances, it results from an individual who is not consuming enough calories to account for their exercise energy expenditure. Um, So it's either they're physically not consuming enough or they're exercising so much and not eating enough to, to counteract that energy deficit. Um, and it's, it's really the, the metabolic system is being suppressed, which then starts to suppress the reproductive hormones that are, um, produced and, um, leads to a decrease in estrogen and progesterone over a specific amount of time. Um, so, you can have a variety of these menstrual disturbances. So they range from the most severe, which would be amenorrhea um, in these exercising women. But we also have um, seen subclinical menstrual disturbances, um, such as oligomenorrhea, which is long and inconsistent cycles. There's also luteal phase defects, which are specific to the luteal phase of um, the menstrual cycle and ovulation. So you're, you're not having enough stimulus through luteinizing hormone um, to uh, cause a release of the egg from the ovaries. So you're, you're not fertile. Um, and for 
athletes that are most at risk for exercise-associated menstrual disturbances, exercise-induced reproductive dysfunction, these are the athletes that are probably going to be um, the most more competitive or elite athletes, although not, you know, recreational athletes as well um, can also suffer from this. But those that are probably doing the higher amount of activity, um, those that are in leanness or aesthetic-based sports that are dealing with, you know, being judged partially on how they look, uh, because there is a psychological component to this. Um, also, athletes that are in weight class sports, boxing, wrestling, rowing, um, mm-hmm. these these people are um, are more common, commonly so, seen. So, so could this occur in males as well? Is this something that, okay, because yes, yes. So just when you're talking about this, the first thing I thought of was like female athlete triad. That's like what it, this is. Yep. Okay, yeah. so that, that was kind of my follow-up is that what it is, but I didn't, I guess I didn't really think about it from a standpoint of, uh, when you mentioned like weight classes and wrestling in different sports like that, who had to cut severe amounts of weight in a short amount of time. Like you hear these wrestling stories of what these, what these athletes have to do. And it's, it's, it's quite, I mean, honestly, it's, it's scary to, you know, health risk, but it it's is, interesting that, yeah. you, that you mentioned that. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Nicole. I think it's really valuable information and, you know, female athlete triad is something that I've come across a little bit, but honestly don't have, you know, obviously the intense background that you have on it, but I guess I never really thought about it from a male athlete standpoint too, in other sports like cross country and males and wrestling and males where there's, you know, there's a weight component to it. And the psychological component too is really uh, interesting too. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of like a follow-up question to this is that, you know, if we were in a, in an athletic setting and say, you know, a coach or a a practitioner uh, suspected that someone, one of their athletes wasn't meeting their caloric demands. Um, You know, this is is kind of a a tough subject, uh, especially with, you know, sports like gymnastics and different aesthetic sports where you are judged in a sense on appearance, whether we agree with it or not. I guess my, my question to you is, and to share some of this with the audience is, well, how would you, as a PhD or soon to be PhD trained individual approach an athlete with this conversation in terms of them meeting their caloric demands? You know, as you said, this is a a very difficult conversation to have. I, because the psychological component in itself, you know, could be driving this energy deficiency. Um, I, I would like to hope that, a practitioner or a coach has a personal enough relationship with the athlete or patient or client, whoever it may be, that they can approach the conversation from a point of concern without making the athlete feel like they're attacked or um, go on the defensive. I think that honestly, one, one way, and you know, I'm not a medical professional, but I think one way that you might be able to start this conversation without getting the athlete defensive is to routinely have group informational discussions with a sports psychologist, with a, a sports dietitian, mm-hmm. um, with the team physician, where we can start talking about energy deficiency and start talking about you know these consequences that can occur when you're not eating enough. If if they can start to grasp that this is this is more than just performing really well for like a race or a game, uh, right. a title, a medal, you know, it's a lot more than that. And these consequences can have really severe 
physiological impacts on your health well into, you know, the rest of your life. And I think that if we could have more group discussions, then it would be more routine and Mm -hmm. the athletes would get more comfortable with the people that they're interacting with and would feel more comfortable to come forward and say, Hey, I think that I'm having a a little bit of issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you point me in the right direction? I, you know, no, that's, that's great. And I come from more of like a strength conditioning background and some of the things like weightlifters and stuff also go through similar things, bodybuilders too, where they develop this really severe, like bad, just really negative relationship with food. And they just, they don't view food as enjoyment anymore. It's just something that definitely it's, and so it's, it's interesting that you mentioned some of those things. I think the group conversation would be a really good starting point. Having and that's really what sports science is, right? Having the, yeah. the, 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 you know, the researchers, the, the medical professionals in with the coaches and the athletes and having these necessary conversations because they you are know, important. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's an expert in something, right? right you can't right. be an expert in everything. Right, so you have right. to use who is around you. I think it, it definitely takes a multidisciplinary team. And, you know, some of these women, like, they might not be showing, you know, clinically diagnosed eating Mm -hmm. disorders like anorexia or bulimia, but they could have subclinical disordered eating behaviors or altered eating behaviors um, that could certainly impact their, you know, willingness to consume food or, you know, change their their body composition. Um, And, you know, I focusing on health as opposed to, I, I don't know, like I'll probably get some probably bad comments for that, but you know, it's not all about the competition. You right. have to have like a balance between right. doing well and right. being a healthy, successful athlete. Like you, right. if you're not eating enough, you're not healthy enough to perform. Right. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, I think the way that Harjeev and I see, and I think other people would tend to agree with you more so than opposing Nicole is that athletics is a vehicle for health. Like it should facilitate healthy behaviors you know, at the end of the day, like it's great to be super competitive and, you know, to be successful, but if it's a detriment to your well being, it's not a good situation. I'd imagine too, just, I'm just have some thoughts just roll with me that this could affect academic performance as well. That this could have a potentially negative effect on school, because if you're struggling in your sport, you're struggling with eating, there could be consequences into the academic side of things. Yeah. I'm, and there's some new research, I guess, with and this is like going off the topic, I guess, a little bit, but with women who are severely energy deficient, like anorexic women, um, they're low estrogen because they've gotten to a point where they're so energy deficient, they're not um, producing enough estrogen. That estrogen might actually be related to some cognitive function, um, <laughs> cognitive declines. So I don't, I don't think there's enough data to say that that, you know, like a subclinical menstrual disturbance, that you know, subclinical estrogen deficiency could cause like severe cognitive dysfunction. But I, I think there is some merit to saying that, yeah, certainly academic performance could decline. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah no, um, I think you hit on this already, but I want to get your perspective on uh, a follow-up to the previous question that Jason asked. Um, what are some more practical ways that student athletes uh, or just athletes in general can keep track of their energy expenditure and use it as a means to optimize performance alongside their teams, coaches, and staff? I know with the onset of maybe tech technology nowadays, you know, you have that, but then 
you know, how can just athletes take the initiative instead of, you know, coaches per se, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I think technology, all of us, I I would venture to say that most of us have some sort of smart watch that we wear on a normal basis of, you know, Apple watch, Fitbit, Garmin, whoop band. So using those to track your, not only, your expenditure during an exercise, but even for just daily function, that it's not entirely accurate, but it still will give you a nice estimate of what you could be potentially expending. And that could kind of guide you along the lines of how you could supplement your diet to counteract some of um, what you're doing. I think there are some nice uh, dietary programs online, like MyFitnessPal, where you can track both exercise and diet. Um, it's nice to have that record because if you're going into a competition or a race or, you know, something like that, and you track your, how you're feeling, you know, what you've been eating leading up to that, if you have a real crappy race or, you know, you don't perform as well during a game, you can go back and start looking at the patterns for, you know, prior to this event, what was I what was I eating? Was I eating enough? Did I recover enough prior to this event? Um, you know, on, on workouts that were really, really great. What was I doing that helped me get to that point? And I think now I would say that, I mean, I've been out of collegiate athletics for a while, but even when I was still actively running, our coach was heavily involved in, um, tracking our workouts, tracking our diets, um, we were working with a, a sports dietitian, I'm yeah. sure. And it's been like 10 years. So, um, I'm sure the technology has, has changed a lot and the analysis that they're able to do on this to help the athletes perform their best is, is probably, um, a lot better than what I was. <laughs> I think I was literally like manually writing down. Yeah, exactly. That's what I did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nicole, I, you kind of, you sort of answered it already. I was, I was going to ask you a follow-up to this. And I know since you've, you know, you've been in collegiate athletics and you've had some collegiate athletes actually on the podcast who are now PhD uh, researchers as well. But do you think that athletes are actually tracking like their food intake? Do you think it's gotten better, like the behaviors and stuff? Because, you know, you mentioned like you have a crappy race and stuff. And one of the first things that, you know, that I thought of, of is that if an athlete is tracking this longitudinally, I'm big on the whole longitudinal data, especially mm-hmm. with health, health, whatever it is, whatever sort of physiological mechanisms you want to talk about but from like a nutritional standpoint if you were to have like sort of this longitudinal data of okay i consumed this many calories this week and my race performance was this or this many calories the week before was that do you think athletes actually take the initiative to do that for the most part do you think we, it requires a little bit of a push from coaches and stuff i think that if you're driven enough to to be a successful athlete you would try and do everything in your power to to put yourself in a good position. And I think that includes tracking your exercise and diet. I know that like for the subjects that we use in our um, participants in our research studies, they're usually recreationally active women. And there is, I think that they are more reluctant to track their, their diet. Um, There's a lot of underreporting of their dietary consumption. They might overreport their exercise Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel like for a collegiate athlete, if I don't, I guess I have, I've 
you know, I've been out for such a long time. I would assume that if, if someone wants to be the best, they would do everything in their power to yeah. put themselves in that position. And that if that means spending a couple minutes a day to track their food and exercise, I think it's a fairly easy way yeah. to. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, just going off of this a little bit more, I think it empowers athletes too, because now they're in control of their own information, right? Yeah. Like they're able to subjectively track, okay, this workout was really hard today. You know, what did I eat? Okay, now maybe I'll tweak it a little bit more to eat this, and then the workout is better. So I think, but I think it takes individuals like yourself too who have yeah. this background and say, let me, let's work together on this. And yeah. now you're empowering the athlete, whether it's recreational, elite level, or what have you. And I, I them. yeah, and I, I would say that, you know, this energy deficiency and its, its downstream effects are so huge that some people don't realize that they're under eating or think that they're doing everything correctly. And I think it, sometimes you got to bite the bullet and just speak to a dietitian and they can point you on the right track to how you can adjust based on what you're doing. And, um, I I think there's definitely, you should definitely be working with a a nutritionist if you're, you're uh, yeah, and competitive. I think it comes down to like education too, right? You want to educate your, your athletes, your coaches. Um, I mean, there's been times I remember that I never had breakfast before practice. You know? right, it's right. like, uh, come on, you know, and then you have two days that day, you know, it's like, you know, there's, there's gotta be a, a formal sort of education period for these athletes. And, you know, I think times have changed a little bit where people are, I, I see a lot, a lot more dietitians and nutritionists mm-hmm. part of staffs now, which is, mm-hmm. Really, really critical. Um, so along those same lines, um, and I know we hit on it before, but I know you also serve on the board for the Male and Female Athlete Triad Coalition. Um, and we're going to link that also in the show notes. Uh, but can you briefly explain what the Athlete Triad actually is? Sure. So what I've discussed this, you know, up to this point has been the female athlete triad. So yeah, energy yeah. deficiency as it relates to menstrual dysfunction and bone health. And it you can actually fall along a spectrum of this condition. So you can be healthy, have, you know, optimal energetic status, optimal menstrual function, you're eumenorrheic, you're ovulating, um, you have good bone health for your age. Then you can start going along the path to some unhealthy um, subclinical um, disturbances where, you know, you're, you might be moderately energy deficient for a certain period of time that can lead to those subclinical menstrual disturbances like luteal phase defense defects and ovulation, um, oligomenorrhea, those long and, and inconsistent cycles. And then you can start seeing decrements to your bone health. So you can start, um, having stress fractures. You can start, um, you know, on the most severe end of the spectrum, osteoporosis at a really early age. And it's just terrifying. Um, And again, on the most severe end of the spectrum for menstrual disturbances, amenorrhea, you know, for energy, it could be a severe energy deficit, you know, with or without an eating disorder, but enough to be contributing to um, these severe energy um, related conditions. Um, and, you know, so I talked about female, but this also a similar condition 
has emerged in men. And it's not exactly the same. Um, there's still an energy, a, a reproductive component, a bone health component. Um, and I'm not the most well-versed in the male athlete triad as of yet, um, but it is related to the hypogonadal pituitary um, gonadal axis. So you're, you know, the energy deficiency is leading to um, metabolic suppression, which in men could be seen as having low testosterone from a reproductive standpoint. They could have um, altered sperm characteristics. So you can have oligospermia. Your sperm might be, you know, not well-shaped, not very mobile. Um, you can even have low libido. And it's like, men don't really realize that this is also a thing that could impact them. And then bone, you know, bone stress injuries, again, osteoporosis. It seems like for men, it takes a much higher energy deficit to cause um, these issues. And again, I'm not an expert on this, but this energy deficiency impacts everyone. It's not just, you know, the most research has been done in female athletes. I mean, the female athlete triad was introduced in the early nineties and still a lot of people don't know what the female athlete triad is, but um, yeah, men as well can be impacted. Um, and I think it's a very important topic to. That, that's discuss. interesting that you mentioned that because the work that I do and more like concussion ACL side is females are underrepresented. It's usually, you know, usually how research started was your standard male, five foot eight, 175 pound individual. Like that's where all our human subject research started, right? So it's interesting when you mention, when you think about it from that perspective, whereas now males are the understudied population now, as it he talks about the athlete triad. So that's yeah. interesting to get your thoughts on that. Nicole, I wanted to ask you a few more questions before we, before we wrap up the episode. We want to talk and highlight a little bit more of the work that you've done. We know with COVID, you know, the everything's just, it's kind of the wild, wild west right now. We're all trying to navigate as PhD students and finish our degree. But what are some of the ongoing slash upcoming projects that you have on your docket right now? And specifically, if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing like your specific dissertation research. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of my dissertation is built around trying to identify some laboratory measures for energy deficiency. So one of the biomarkers in the paper that we were looking at, the monkey paper, um, is total triiodothyronine. So it's a Mm -hmm. metabolic hormone. So I'm using that, relating it to a resting metabolic rate indicator. Um, And I was able to identify this ratio um, to relate it to energy deficiency at one period of time. And then my follow-up studies have been to see whether or not this is a reliable measure over an extended period of time. So in a year in ovulatory women. So if we have people that are weight stable, reproductively functioning women, and it works in them, then my next study is, uh, which I'm currently working on, is to see whether this indicator of energetic status um, can end um, can identify women that have been energy deficient and with a um, intervention of increased energy intake over the course of a year, see if they improved. Mm. Um, so that's my one of my studies. I also have looked into some psychological um, variables related to the eating behaviors in some of these exercising women um, to see if it relates to stress and depression, which it seems to. And I'm also planning on looking at um, 
how the psychological components of these women change over the course of the year with the intervention of increased calories, as I had mentioned. Um, so it's all part of this um, randomized control trial that had been run in the lab several years ago. It was a beast of a study to conduct, mm-hmm. um, trying to get women to increase their calories for yeah. a year is yeah. certainly tough, yeah. certainly a challenge. Um, and then as you know, before we were recording, I'm also doing another project that is random, like not related to exercising athletes at all. I am essentially giving older women prunes to look at their bone health and see if a year-long intervention of dried plum consumption can positively impact bone mineral density in these women who have low bone mineral density. Um, so that's what I'm doing. COVID seems has like, uh, seems like we're going to need to have you on a year later. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. You know, I, you know, I, I'm not allowed to look at the data, but, um, I would say, you know, a couple, couple a day, three to four a day yeah. might be the happy medium. Um, but that's fun. It, it's it's an interesting. It sounds thing. like you, it sounds like uh, yeah, randomized control trials. I've never been a part of one yet. At some point, I hope to, but it seems like those are just monsters of things to get off the ground, and especially now with COVID and all that kind of stuff. Just this has been. A, I mean, not only was has the study been a challenge, just it's a, right. You know, it's hard. Human research is hard. I love right, it, yeah. but there's yeah. you know. I mean, you know, people don't listen to you. People right. won't do exactly what you need to for when they come in for a lab visit. You can't control them as much as yeah. <laughs> I would love to. They're not rats. Rats will do anything that you right, want. I was just about to say that. <laughs> Diana, yeah, I know it's rats or monkeys. Yeah. That's interesting, Nicole. It sounds like you got a lot on your plate. And, you know, we hope that, you know, as we transition back post-COVID and still on ongoing COVID, that you're able to get up and running and get that dissertation finished. Cause I think all three of us can agree going into the last year of the PhD, that's priority number Ready. one. Yes. But just because as kind of a wrap up question, this is something that we ask all of our guests, you know, given their diverse experiences and you've had quite a bit of a unique background. <laughs> what would, you know, just kind of one little general takeaway that a, that a practitioner can gain from, from your knowledge base. What's sure. something that they can consider, whether it's working with an athlete, working in a clinical type of setting energy deficiency can happen to anyone. So getting the conversation going and starting to talk to the athletes or, you know, your clients or patients about proper fueling is of the utmost importance. Um, You can't just assume that it is elite athletes and, and highly competitive athletes that are going to be energy deficient. And the more we talk about it, the more people will hear they might initiate, you know, some learning, some education um, regarding, you know, the consequences of energy deficiency, and they might reach out to people who, um, who can help them better their nutrition and, and exercise habits. So it can happen to anyone. <laughs> no, no, that's a great, that's a great overview. And just thanks again, Nicole, for taking the time yeah, to, to share all this. I think it's really important information, especially as we start getting back into sport, right? Like we've been off now for six months more or less. And, you know, you have your younger athletes, your higher level athletes, even your recreational athletes now are starting to transition back more into more activity. And that's going to be an important thing, right? Their eating behaviors I'd imagine are going to be different from six months ago now to the next six months. So I think for the listeners who will be, you know, taking a dive into this episode, I think it's really important information. So we appreciate again, your time today, Nicole. 
Thank you so yeah, much. And thank you for providing this platform. I think it's excellent. You know, it gives us a chance with all the conferences being shut right. down, you know, you, you don't get the same uh, ability to communicate your research. So this is a, just a wonderful platform. And I really appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, Harjeev and I's master plan here is just to have a bunch of experts in the next five to 10 years <laughs> when we start our own facility so that we can reach Perfect. out to people like yourselves and be like, okay, remember we had that episode on the podcast? Like, <laughs> yes. That's what people don't realize about this. That would be awesome. It's our secret plan. No one ah, <laughs> okay, well, I'm in on the secret. Oh, perfect. Thanks again, Nicole. Again, we really you. appreciate uh, your time today and, you know, continue to stay safe and uh, we'll be sure to, to keep up with you and keep up on your progress. As a little uh, a parting thing, if if individuals want to reach out to you, whether it's social media or any other forms of communication, what are some ways to get a hold of you? Um, so my I, I'm on Twitter. It's at Nick Strock. Um, I'm also on Instagram. I don't know my handle, but I'll give it to you guys. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> I'm on. I'm basically on everything, whether or not I'm posting. If you could reach out to me and I'll answer a question. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Cool. Yeah, we'll we'll link all that information in the show notes. Thanks again, Nicole. Take care. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Thanks.